Well, this morning we uh, begin a new series. The Master of Morality has been concluded now for the fifth time. I guess several people said they were in their last message on this series. But today we begin a new new series that begins to point us towards our missions conference, which is not too far away. I'll speak this morning, and then Dr. Bob Provost will speak two times this week, Wednesday and Friday. And then Dr. MacArthur will speak on Monday, seven days from today. You might also know, those of you who are new to the school, the board of directors of the Master's College and the Master's Seminary will be in town next Monday and Tuesday. And so if you see some dignified men walking around in suits, your chances are those are members of our board. And we would invite you to just walk up to them and introduce yourself and find out who they are, if indeed they're with um, our leadership team and thank them for their ministry and uh, share anything you'd like. Just make them feel welcome. I know they appreciate that when you do that. And then that's Monday, next Monday, and then the following Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and for many of you, Saturday and Sunday, will be um, you'll be out on your missions trips. There'll be no classes, and we've, we're excited about the trips and your response to your involvement in the trips. It's been outstanding. And then a little later in the month, we'll come back and have a chapel, not only to review, pretty short after the missions conference, we'll review the missions conference. And then later in the month, towards the end of this month, I think it's the last day of this month, the 31st, Halloween, Wednesday, we will have a report for you on our summer missions trips, the students, 165 of them, that were out this summer. And at that time, also hand out the brochures for next summer's trips. So that gives you an idea of where we're trying to go. And our objective here really isn't to turn all of you into missionaries. We don't believe that's right. We don't believe that's God's will for all of you to turn into full-time missionaries. Our desire in the missions conference is just to open your minds to missions, to let you hear from men who have committed their lives to missions, and also to add to that the dimension of you sharing your own personal faith. Many of you have not done that um, if you're an average group of Christians in college. A lot of you have never really stopped and talked to somebody about Jesus. And that's not good. It's understandable because a lot of times that's terrifying. And I know that same feeling. I really don't think that I was brought along in my ability to share my faith until I met a guy by the name of Tom Maharis who runs a church, Manhattan Bible Church in in New York City. And he kind of took me under his wing for a number of months and then we went back to New York City and with a bunch of college kids and high school students. We actually shared the gospel for about three weeks straight. And you really need somebody to go with. You need somebody who's done it before. You need somebody who is a little stronger in that area. Because just going up by yourself to somebody for the first time, you know, you feel like your heart is beating so loud that they can hear it and you can hear it and everybody knows you're scared to death. So if we could accomplish anything in the next few weeks, just to open your mind to missions, or for those of you who've been here for a few years, to rekindle some of your thinking about missions, and then give you a chance to go out and share your faith. And that, not again with the purpose of all of you turning into missionaries. We want to, we want to use this missions conference as a catalyst to help many of you move towards a summer missions trip. We'd love for you to experience our God and other believers in another culture. We believe that's very valuable, both just educationally. Um, you know, many educational institutions of yesteryear wouldn't allow you to graduate until you'd had some type of cross-cultural Experiment, not even for Christ, just go see in other cultures. So you don't view all of your life in light of your own little world. We want that for you educationally. We also want it for you with respect to the Great Commission. So that if God doesn't call you to be a missionary, 
and you come back, you know, and you get plugged into a local church after you've graduated and you have a job and somebody talks about missions, you'd be a person who, who could say, yeah, I've been overseas, I've spent some time with a missionary. In fact, I lived in a missionary's home. I've, I have some understanding. It's not just this word, missions, or this thing, Great Commission. We'd love for you to experience it so that even as you move into being churchmen and church women, that you would have a ministry there as you stand for missions. So with that, by way of background, uh, maybe we could, I could speak to you today, and I'm thankful for the chance to talk to you. Maybe you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Do you hear something? Is the phone ringing? <laughs> Hello? Mrs. Maddox. Dave, it's your mother. No, no, no. I don't, I don't mind you calling this way every week to talk about Davey. No, I enjoy these times. I think he's especially cute, too. No, he's actually, he's doing a fine job. Oh, yeah, great year. Absolutely. Rumor? Publicly embarrassing people. No. Does that sound like your little Davy? It does. Well, no, we haven't heard a thing about that. Okay, good. One last thing. Yeah, I, I, as a matter of fact, I spoke with Dave's wife, Kim, just like, well, in fact, she calls every week, too. Right, we just talk about Dave, yeah. She's concerned, right, uh-huh. No, well, what she says is he hasn't done that now for about two weeks. We're kind of excited. I, I agree. It is hard to break. Bedwetting is a problem. I know that. All right. Okay, no, good. Call back anytime. Thanks. No, I won't tell Dave you call. No, okay. Great. Bye-bye. <laughs> uh, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a good thing this is a chapel and not a church, right? We'd be in trouble. Let's read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I'd like to entitle my message this morning, The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead. This may be one of the best passages, with the exception of maybe Romans 3, on the state of the unregenerate person. And my goal this morning with you would be to remind you of some things about the people we are now, in the next few days, going to share the gospel with. I'd like to refresh your memory, maybe give some insight into who these people are. See what we can learn, again, from God's Word this morning, that might be some help to us as we attempt to effectively and skillfully and with wisdom share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll do that this morning under three points. Number one, living a life of death, living 
a life of death. The second point will be trapped, trapped in the domain of death. And then lastly, driven to the deeds of death. You'll notice there in verse 1 that you and they're speaking of us, but we're now Christians, so we'll speak of it in terms of those we'll go share our faith with next week. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We would call this being spiritually dead. And the question I'd like to begin with and have you think about is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Ever thought about that? Some people would tell us, and there's a measure of truth to it, that to be spiritually dead is analogous to being physically dead. In the sense that when somebody is physically dead, they are unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. Somebody who's physically dead, we could walk up to them with a pin and poke it right on into their flesh, and there would be no reaction. They wouldn't recoil. They wouldn't flinch because they're dead. They are, therefore, unresponsive to physical stimuli. We could also take a lighter and flick it on and just hold it right into their flesh until it actually burned, and there would be no response. There would be nothing, because they are physically dead and therefore completely incapable of sensing, responding to, or being impacted by physical stimuli. I think that's a helpful way to look at it in a couple of regards. It helps us protect a couple of major doctrines that are very important to our Christian faith. One, total depravity. Two, the doctrine of election. And so an analogy like that, that being spiritually dead is completely, or in this point, analogous to physical death, unresponsive to physical or therefore spiritual stimuli, is very helpful in those, at least those two counts. I think if carried too far, however, it can leave us with an impoverished and warped understanding of our unregenerate friends. And I hope you have unregenerate friends. It, it concerns me sometimes. I was speaking with another Christian about this just the other day. When Christians will say, you know, I don't have any unsaved friends. And the question is, why? And the response is, well, I just have absolutely nothing in common with them. Well, that's a tragic state. That's, you certainly couldn't hear Jesus say that. To carry this idea of spiritual zombie too far leaves us with an impoverished and warped understanding of who our unregenerate friends are and who these people we're going to share Christ with next week. Living, that's why I entitled the first point, living a life of death. They are living a life of death. Every Sunday I get out of church, and they're in Silmar, and I come up to five, and I get off on McBean. I live over there in the bungalows behind Granary Square. And so I get off on McBean and I run down that road. And I pass this gorgeous church every Sunday. Because I guess we get out a little earlier than they do. And about the time I'm driving by, they're getting out. And the parking lot is packed. The facility is absolutely gorgeous. It's manicured. It's beautifully taken care of. And there are groups of people standing um, right on the sidewalks there and, and around their cars and they're talking and they're well-dressed and they have what appear to be Bibles in their hands and the kids are running around doing what they do. And it's a very evangelistic church. They have a significant impact on their community. They are family-oriented. When they're inside their church and when they're inside their homes, they pray, they serve one another very effectively, they work very hard. Their involvement is, ratio is very high. They take out of their pocket and they worship by giving every Sunday. They love each other and they have hope for the future. The church I'm describing 
is the Mormon church. The Mormon church. They do all those things every Sunday. And they are not doing that in a world of spiritual zombieism. There is meaning for them in that. It touches their spirit. It touches and engages their mind. Their soul is moved. It is not just a routine that they walk through like little robots with no feeling and no emotion and no compassion and no spiritual sensitivity. Something is going on in their hearts and in their church and in their group. The New Age Movement. One person who advocates or is a leader in the New Age Movement says this. People want a living, feeling experience of spirituality. That's an unregenerate man writing about his movement. They want to learn to get in touch with the soul. He's saying that because he means it. He wants that. And his followers want that. They want to get in touch with spirituality. They want to get in touch with their soul. Ralph White, another New Ager who teaches philosophy at one of the most successful New Age organizations, New York's Open Center, they call it, capital O, capital C, Open Center. The movement, he says, encompasses an enormous spectrum involving the body, the mind, the spirit, including an increased awareness of nutrition, the rise in ecological thinking, a change in business perspectives, greater emphasis on the individual's intuition. That's interesting. This open center there in New York offers to 2,500 people a month courses in holistic health, body work, spiritual inquiry, psychological insights, and inner creativity. Walter Beebe, a part founder of this open center, says this. These people are seeking a deeper spiritual involvement in the world without getting hooked by a guru, channeler, or some other substitute for their own individual creativity. Now, there's two little examples. The Mormon church and the New Age movement. And you and I could run our minds through all of the false religions of the world today. And in those false religions, you would find in most cases, at least in their leadership and at least in their core group, real, devout, spiritual, soul-nourishing activity going on. Nourishing not in the proper sense of the word, but the attempt is being made to get in touch with my spirit, in touch with my soul, in touch with whatever I define as God. People are hungry and thirsty for such things. So I don't think it's fair to say or think about the unregenerate in a completely analogous form to physical death in that they are totally unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. Now, that's a case by observation, never a good way to land on truth. What would the Bible actually have to say about the inner spiritual activity of these unregenerate folks? Well, we wouldn't have to turn. We know it very well. Let's think about Romans chapter 1 for a minute. Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God abides on the unregenerate men who actively are suppressing and holding down something. What is it? It's the truth of God. And where are they getting it? They're getting it from general revelation. God in his creation is sending messages constantly that impact the spirit, the heart, the soul of a human being with the truth of his existence and his invisible attributes. And it is such a powerful impact, it hits them so hard that they actually have to suppress it, hold it down, 
And of course, the passage goes on to say that is the basis by which they are judged. The wrath of God then abides upon them. Another passage in the Old Testament, which um, beautifully describes what goes on inside of the unregenerate. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 55, the first few verses, comes at it from a little different perspective. Ho, every one of you who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. In this passage, Isaiah is using the physical dimensions of our hunger and our thirst, which we experience on a regular and repetitive basis, to find nourishment for our physical bodies. And when it's undernourished, when we don't have enough food and we don't have enough water, our body begins to signal need. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. And what is going on is the same dimensions are happening in the spiritual realm. My spirit is undernourished. I don't have enough of what I was created to have. I am thirsty. I am hungry. The problem comes in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. The problem comes that as the unregenerate senses his spiritual thirst and his spiritual hunger, the impoverished condition of his soul, the wretched condition of his life, and by that I don't mean abhorrently sinful, I just mean his human condition is wretched because he is not in fellowship with the living God. He thirsts and he hungers. And the problem is that he buys things to quench his thirst and to satisfy his hunger which are not truly bread. He finds substitutes that try to satisfy his soul for what he really longs for. He really longs for God. He, really, he probably can't say that to you, and he probably can't articulate that for you, but what he is created to experience is perfect relationship with God, and in the absence of that relationship, he hungers and he thirsts. Then he sees a beautiful car and says, now if I had that, it would do fine for the thirst in my soul. And so he begins on a career path to own the car to buy the house, to marry the beautiful woman. On and on and on the list can go of things which the unregenerate, and as we talk more, we'll see that we as Christians are subject even to the same folly. We see a pattern of life that is developed in which we are buying things which look like bread but are not bread, which look like wine but are not wine, do not have the necessary substance therein to satisfy the spiritual thirst and the hunger within the soul which only God can satisfy. The people that you and I will be sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with next week are such people. They are people who, since they were born until the time that they're alive today, in their unregenerate, depraved, foolish hearts, have been dealing with, sometimes not even in the front of their mind, but dealing with the emptiness and the hollowness of not being in relationship with God that they were designed to experience and then have set themselves on a course and on a path to buy what is not wine and to buy what is not bread. They are impoverished in their soul. Many of them will not admit that to you. Many of them will say to you, I'm fine. Christianity is for weak people, i.e. for people who can't deal with their lives on their own. I have dealt with my life on my own. See my house, see my clothes, see my life. I'm fine. I have no need. And that may exactly be how they're feeling at the moment. 
but in reality, they have set out to buy what is not wine and what is not bread. Flip over then to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a second. What is spiritual death? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Is there a way that we can help our first definition? And I think in Ephesians 4 you get a lot of help. But look at verses 17 and 18. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Here it is, verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding, and here, excluded from the life of God. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Excluded is the word I want you to think about in relationship to God. Excluded from the life of God. In the Greek, I don't want to try to pronounce the word, but it it has other derivatives. It has other words that come out of it. To be estranged from God. To be alienated from God. So to be excluded from the life of God, to be estranged from the life of God, to be alienated from the life of God, and the word is in the perfect tense, emphasizing that is a continual state of existence. The unregenerate folks are in a continual state of spiritual death. They are continually alienated and estranged and and separated from the life of God. They are not, however, out of contact with God. That's an important point. They are not out of contact. They are out of fellowship with God, but they are not out of contact with God. Briefly, remember, they feel the wrath of God. That comes from God. Romans 2 says they feel from God the guilt of their sin. That is contact with God. Romans 5 says that they are at enmity with God. They sense that. That represents contact, an adversarial form of contact, but contact with the living God. And Romans 8 says they are under condemnation from God. They are out of fellowship with God, but not out of contact with God. Death basically means separation. When you die physically, your inner man, your spirit, your soul is separated from your physical body. When you die spiritually, it means that you're separated. Separated from what? Separated from the life of God. Separated from the presence of God. Separated from the fellowship of God. The love, the nurture, the care of God. To be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. To be estranged from God. And now, an an illustration of that. If you were to know a Jewish, a very devout Jewish family... And if they had some children, and at about 18 or 19, 20 years old, the young boy were to, at 18 or 19, accept Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as his personal Lord and Savior. He were born again. And he were to come home and say to his devout Jewish parents, I have accepted the Messiah. I have received the living Lord Jesus Christ, who died and is now raised again and sitting at the throne of God. I'm a believer. I'm born again. In keeping with tradition, the Jewish devout family would have no option but to hold an actual, literal funeral for the young man. The father would look his boy straight in the face and say, You are now what? You are now dead to me. You are now dead to me. And they would proceed then with the funeral and they'd have the coffin and the people would be invited and they would mourn his death and they would bury the coffin and from then on out, it is no more. 
You are not a part of my inheritance. You are not welcome in my house. We do not talk by phone. We do not write letters to each other. We have no relationship with respect to fellowship. No more inheritance in my inheritance. You're not my son. You're dead to me. And it usually ends in an explosive encounter in which both parties are in tears because of the trauma of being torn apart. So they are therefore out of fellowship, but they are not out of contact. Because every single waking moment of that young boy's life, and also, I should add, of the father's life, they recognize that they were created for relationship with each other. They, they, they long for relationship with each other. They wish they could have relationship with each other. And therein is the torment. Therein is the pain. What I could experience with my father, I can't. What I'm supposed to experience with my father, I can't. I'm still alive. I still have capacity for that relationship. It just goes unfulfilled and unmet. The most blissful state of being that an unregenerate person, whether it is in earth or in hell, the most blissful state they could ever have is to be totally and completely unresponsive to all spiritual stimuli. Because then the wrath and the guilt and the condemnation and the enmity of God would not weigh upon their heart, their soul, and their mind. And they would be free to pursue any life they want without any sense of their sinfulness, of their being torn away from God. It would be absolute, utter bliss. Out of fellowship with God, not out of contact with God. And I wonder, and I say wonder because I wonder, I wonder if this isn't the pain of hell. We know the pleasure of heaven... Whom have I in heaven but thee? The great and glorious expectation of heaven isn't the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the fact that we'll have wings and our own little harp. The tremendous anticipation of being in heaven is that we will be in the immediate presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ and He will so fill and so satisfy and so complete our created longing and desire for relationship with Him that it will be absolute bliss. And I wonder sometimes if the inverse isn't true of hell. If the real pain and the real suffering of hell, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched to explain the length and the duration of suffering, but if the essence of suffering isn't that gnawing, nagging awareness brought to fruition that I was created to be loved and to be cared for and to be in perfect fellowship with the living God and now I will never, ever, ever have it. That's hell. And some people live hell on earth. They're called unregenerate. The difference is, while they're here on earth, there are various options whereby they can substitute and try to put a band-aid on the aching soul. There are things they can go out and buy that look like bread and look like wine, and they can deceive themselves to a certain degree that they can in some way mitigate the pain. But in hell, it's all there. And there is no relief. So, one, they are living a life of death, actively living a life of death. Point two, they are trapped in the domain of death. Trapped in the domain of death. Back to Ephesians 2. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul now describes the domain of death, the environment of death, the location in, when the, in which this life of death is going to be lived. 
The little word in there in verse 2 is in the locative case. It means the sphere. The locative case communicates the sphere. So what he is saying is, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in the sphere in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The Bible often refers to this sphere in which the unregenerate live. If you were to study Romans 6, you would find that there is, a, there is a, the, the idea of being under the power or in the domain of darkness and death and sin. There is a sphere of death. Colossians 1.13 even says it. For he delivered us, where? From the domain of darkness, the sphere of darkness, and he has transferred us into an entirely different domain. It's called the kingdom of his beloved son. So on the one hand, we are in the sphere of death or in the sphere of trespasses and sins. That's the unregenerate state. What is the regenerate state? To be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Ephesians 1 says it at least 10 or 11 times that we are now what? Not in trespasses and sins. We are in Christ. Our sphere now is in Christ. The sphere in which we live and work and move in the spiritual dimension is that we are in Christ and secure in Christ. Now, he begins to describe the domain or the sphere. And he uses these two words, trespasses and sins. The word trespass, as we looked last time on Galatians, means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate or to go the wrong direction. The domain one is the domain of going the wrong direction. Secondly, it's the domain of sin, hamartia, the general word, 173 times in the New Testament. And it's really a hunter's word. And it describes the hunter who sees the deer, draws the bow, aims and is looking to hit the mark, releases and the arrow misses. And somehow it's too high or it's too low, to the right, to the left. You missed your mark. Sin is missing the mark. Spiritually, sin is missing the mark of absolute perfection before the living God. So he says this domain, if you will is bordered and established within these two words of going the wrong direction, your trespass, and to your sin, missing the mark. It might help to think of it as a store, or maybe the gym, for example. There is a sphere created by the walls of this gym. We have walls on all four sides. We have a roof. We have a ceiling. Inside all of those things is a sphere. What Paul is saying is that the roof and the walls and the ceiling have been laid in the dimensions and in the domain of sin and trespass. And so anywhere you want to go inside the gymnasium, you can go as far as you like. If you'd like to sit up on the top bleacher, that's fine. Underneath the stage, that's fine. Over in the back corner, if you'd like to crawl up and be on the bleacher, you're free to go anywhere you'd like in the domain. Because everywhere in the domain is what? Trespass and sin. So have at it. It's all yours. You can go anywhere you'd like in here. It's all the domain of death. Now, it might be helpful to note that the store, now it's reversed from this to give it a store. The store has a certain ambiance or milieu. It has a certain feeling. It has a certain atmosphere. If you were to open a store, you would put carpet on the floor. You would put a certain kind of wallpaper over there. You'd have a certain kind of light fixture. You'd, you'd bring in a certain kind of decoration. Um, the whole thing would begin to work together and add up to create a certain kind of atmosphere. Think of it for a minute. Penguins has its own unique atmosphere. True? It's a very strong atmosphere. You feel it. Um, a good gas station has a certain milieu and flavor to it. It's vastly different from a drive-in movie theater. They're all done differently. 
How about for a minute we were to think of Foot Locker? When you walk into Foot Locker, you immediately know you've entered an athletic shoe store. The people there are dressed in referee uniforms, whistles around their necks. Typically, they're in perfect shape, looking very athletic, very bright, very cheery, happy to help. There are big posters of the greatest athletes of the world all over the store, kind of communicating the idea, buy your shoe here and play like that. When you go to the desk to pay for what you want, you stand under a basketball hoop and you stand on a basketball key, which is built right into the floor itself. The air conditioning keeps the building very cool, very refreshing, very athletic, very invigorating, and so you have a milieu. You have an ambiance. You look around you and you see everywhere all the different kinds of athletic shoes that anybody could ever dream of. Running shoes, tennis shoes, basketball shoes, racquetball shoes, aerobic shoes. And in their warehouse, they have seem to have every possible size, shape, or color you could ever want. The price range is very, very broad. All of that happens within their atmosphere, within their domain. The domain described here, look at verse 2 again, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, and then according to the prince of the power of the air. The world, the word world there is cosmos, and it does not mean the physical world, it means the ideological world, it means the conceptual world of evil and of sin, the fallen world order or system. You think about this, you talk about the world of sports, right? The wide, wide world of sports. Or you talk about the world of politics. You talk about the world of music. World doesn't have to mean the physical planet. It's, it's, a, it's an area in which certain rules are consistent and people gather according to them. Conceptual and ideological rules reign in that world. It also says there the air, the prince of the power of the air. And that also communicates the atmosphere, not the physical atmosphere, not the stuff around the earth, but a feeling or a mood, a world system. Ideologies, presuppositions, rules, principles, they cast a certain mood or a feeling, and that mood or feeling is called the air. If you were to walk into somebody's house, right after they had received the news that a loved one in their family had died, you would sense a certain air in their house. It's quiet. It's painful. It's sorrowful. It's hurting. If you were to walk at the Grace Community Church on a Sunday evening when they're doing a communion service and the lights are low and the music is playing just a certain way and Dr. MacArthur is speaking in just such a certain tone and there's a reflective attitude over the audience. There's an air of sorts in that church. If you were to walk into our basketball um, locker room right here after we've just pounded Biola this year, destroyed them, laid them flayed all over the floor and you walk in there and you would catch our basketball team exuberant and exciting and instantly, of course, you'd been in the gym, so you'd have felt it there, but you'd have felt it more as you walk in there, the sense of jubilee and excitement and joy, the task having been accomplished. A certain kind of air. And what this text is saying is that the unregenerate person is stuck in a domain, a sphere, which has been created by trespasses and sins. And then once you're inside it, it has a certain world system and air to it, an ambiance, a milieu, and it's all carefully orchestrated to sell what is being sold. As carefully as Foot Locker has designed its system to sell you athletic shoes, Satan has designed his world order to sell you death, 
to sell you lies, to sell you deception. And it all works just a certain way because he is called the prince of the power of the air. He is the manager. He is the owner. He is the number one salesman. He is the genius behind the entire thing. And he sets his store up with great care and it is very effective. He says to you, if you're a Romans one person, no problem. We've got just the model for you. Sex is big these days. We've got fornication. We've got pornography. We've got adultery. We've got homosexuality. We've got bestiality. It's all there on the shelf. Take your time. Browse a bit. See which perversion suits you the best and enjoy. And maybe sex isn't your bag. Maybe it's money. Well, now, it's never been a more materialistic era. We have got people pumping out more of the newest and the latest of everything such that what you just bought is no longer valuable to you. You must have the newest and the latest version. And you're welcome to look at this entire side of our store and ponder all the many things that I have in the realm of materialism. Spend as long as you'd like. Pick out the model that fits you. Try a few on. Really, don't be in a hurry. You've got all the time in your life. If you're a Romans 2 person, you're the moral man, and you don't touch the things of the wicked things of the world. No, you're upright. You're outstanding. You're an orthodox Jew. You observe external religion. You're a moral atheist. You're a moral agnostic. You're a Mormon. You're a Seventh-day Adventist. You're a devout Buddhist. There's a certain moral uprightness in your life. Well, no problem. Right over here, we've got it all. Whatever you'd like, just browse your way through it. We'll find something that you'd really enjoy. Love to help you. If you have any questions, give me a call. You see, there are a thousand options inside the domain of death. And Satan is committed to tailoring an option that looks like bread, that looks like wine, that even tastes like bread and wine, which gives you the illusion of satisfaction, and he'll suit that to whatever your personal growing up standards and patterns are, whoever you've become. If you're a great athlete, we'll sell you down that road. If you're materialistic, we'll sell you down that road. If you're a sex fiend, we'll sell... You see, I've got a lot of options here, and I want you to know we're committed to you getting just exactly what you think you want. No limitations. We're never on back order. The greatest terror, I should add, in the whole thing is that the doors are locked. Nobody can get out on their own. Try as you might. You can't get out. The doors are locked. The interesting thing is, nobody would get out even if they could. You could fly the doors wide open and nobody would go out. Why? Because point three, they're driven to the deeds of death. Look at verse three, driven to the deeds of death. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The word lust, you know, I know, it means strong desire. When it's an evil lust, it's a strong, evil passion. The word desire means drives. Drives that become so strong, they are compulsions. The unregenerate runs around inside the store, compelled and driven according to his evil lusts consuming whatever he can get his hands on. Whatever looks like bread, whatever looks like wine, he has his hands all over it. It's almost like changing the picture from a footlocker to a grocery store. 
and you've got a person who hasn't had a bite to eat in 40 days. They're starving. They're hungry. They're thirsty. And you set the unregenerate inside the grocery store and they go nuts. Compelled and driven to consume. The people you will be sharing with next week are driven, compelled people by the lusts of their flesh to find something that just might satisfy the hunger and the thirst in their soul. Satan says it this way, potentially. He keeps his prisoners in the prison of a natural state, bound hand and foot, laden with diverse lusts as change wherewith chains wherewith he holds them fast. Oh, unregenerate man, you need not, as many do, call on the devil to take you. He already has you. You're a child of his wrath. Spiritually dead, but not spiritually inactive. Completely out of fellowship and completely unable to get in fellowship with God apart from His electing love. But not out of contact with God. Living a life of death. Feeling spiritual feelings. Searching, looking, hunting. But finding you're trapped in a domain of death. And that you are not only trapped there, you're driven to it. Driven to the deeds of death. As I alluded to earlier, I believe that in an understanding of the unregenerate such as I've just described, there is a point of great commonality. Great commonality. Are there times in your Christian life where you thirst for God? Or is He always satisfying every last little thirst you've ever had? Are there times when God feels remote to you and distant? Are there times where you feel the guilt of your sin? Where you feel the crushing hand of God coming into your life and convicting you of your sin? Are there times when you, not trapped in the domain of death, but living on this earth, see the same opportunities, the same car, the same beautiful woman, the same materialistic thing, and feel in yourself of being drawn to that in hopes that it too would make you feel better? You're radically different than the unregenerate. You're born again. You're a new creature in Christ. You have a new heart. But in your flesh, and in that both of you live on this stinking, rotten, corrupted planet, there is a sense in which you both long for God. You're aware of what you're really longing for. He isn't. Maybe you could help Him discover that. Maybe you could reach points of great identification with Him now, even in your unregenerate state. Not how you used to be before you got saved, but how you are now. How you find your tongue is so difficult to control. Because when you're hurting because somebody has done something bad to you, it's so enticing and so temporarily satisfying to just rip that person from head to toe. Well, they do the same thing. Points of tremendous commonality. I believe as you begin to think about the unregenerate person in that way, you will sense more and more of what our Lord felt when He sat over the hills of Jerusalem and wept and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
How many times I've wanted to bring you in under my wing and really take care of you and really give you what you need and really give you what you want. What I understand you want. What you and I understand and can feel and can identify with what they want. But you're hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And you continue to run around out there pursuing bread that isn't bread and wine that isn't wine. Come to the true and the living water. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you would have asked, I would have given you what? Living water. Living water. That you should never thirst again. Sir, please give me this water. Please give me this water.